0: Section 5. The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, written by himself, by James Hogg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The battle now raged immediately in front of the closes leading to the Black Bull. The small body of Whig gentlemen was hardly bested, and it is likely would have been overcome and trampled down every man, had they not been then and there joined by the young cavaliers. Who, fresh to arms, broke the wind, opened the head of the passage, laid about them manfully, and thus kept up the spirits of the exasperated Whigs, who were the men, in fact, that wrought the most array among the populace. The town guard was now on the alert, and two companies of the Cameronian Regiment, with the Honorable Captain Douglas, rushed down from the castle to the scene of action. But for all the noise and hubbub that these caused in the street, The combat had become so close and inveterate that numbers of both sides were taken prisoners fighting hand to hand, and could scarcely be separated when the guardsmen and soldiers had them by their necks. Great was the alarm and confusion that night in Edinburgh, for everyone concluded that it was a party scuffle, and the two parties being so equal in power the most serious consequences were anticipated. The agitation was so prevailing that every party in town, great and small, was broken up, and the Lord Commissioner thought proper to go to the council chamber himself, even at that late hour, accompanied by the sheriffs of Edinburgh and Linlithgow, with sundry noblemen besides, in order to learn something of the origin of the affray. For a long time, the court was completely puzzled. Every gentleman brought in exclaimed against the treatment he had received, in most bitter terms, blaming a mob set on him and his friends by the adverse party, and matters looked extremely ill until at length they began to perceive that they were examining gentlemen of both parties, and that they had been doing so from the beginning. Almost alternately, so equally had the prisoners been taken from both parties. Finally, it turned out that a few gentlemen, two-thirds of whom were strenuous Whigs themselves, had joined in mauling the whole Whig population of Edinburgh. The investigation disclosed nothing the effect of which was not ludicrous, and the Duke of Queensbury whose aim was at that time to conciliate the two factions, tried all that he could to turn the whole fracas into a joke, an unlucky frolic, where no ill was meant on either side, and which yet had been productive of a great deal. The greater part of the people went home satisfied, but not so the Reverend Robert Ringham he did all that he could to inflame both judges and populace against the young cavaliers especially against the young laird of Dal castle whom he represented as an incendiary set on by an unnatural parent to slander his mother and make away with a hapless and only brother and in truth that declaimer against all human merit had that sort of powerful homely and bitter eloquence which seldom missed affecting his hearers. The consequence at that time was that he made the unfortunate affair between the two brothers appear in extremely bad colors, and the populace retired to their homes, impressed with no very favorable opinion of either the laird of Dalcastle or his son George, neither of whom were there present to speak for themselves. As for Ringham himself, he went home to his lodgings, filled with gall and with spite against the young laird, whom he was made to believe the aggressor, and that intentionally. But most of all he was filled with indignation against the father, whom he held in abhorrence at all times, and blamed solely for this unmannerly attack made on his favorite ward, namesake and adopted son, and for the public imputation of a crime to his own reverence in calling the lad his son, and thus charging him with a sin against which he was well known to have leveled all the arrows of church censure with unsparing might. But, filled as his heart was with some portion of these bad feelings, to which all flesh is subject. He kept, nevertheless, the fear of the Lord always before his eyes, so far as never to omit any of the external duties of religion, and farther than that man hath no power to pry. He lodged with the family of a Mr. Miller, whose lady was originally from Glasgow, and had been a hearer and, of course, a great admirer of Mr. Ringham. In that family he made public worship every evening, and that night, in his petitions at a throne of grace, he prayed for so many vials of wrath to be poured on the head of some particular sinner that the hearers trembled, and stopped their ears. But that he might not proceed with so violent a measure, amounting to excommunication, without due scripture warrant, He began the exercise of the evening by singing the following verses, which it is a pity should ever have been admitted into a Christian psalmody, being so adverse to all its mild and benevolent principles. Set thou the wicked over him, and upon his right hand give thou his greatest enemy, even Satan leave to stand. And when by thee he shall be judged, let him remembered be, and let his prayers be turned to sin when he shall call on thee. Few be his days, and in his room his charge another take. His children let be fatherless, his wife a widow make. Let God his father's wickedness still to remembrance call, and never let his mother's sin be blotted out at all. As he in cursing pleasure took, so let it to him fall. As he delighted not to bless, so bless him not at all. As cursing he likes clothes put on, into his bow so. Like water, and into his bones, like oil, down let it go. Young Ringham only knew the full purport of this spiritual song and went to his bed better satisfied than ever that his father and brother were castaways, reprobates, aliens from the church and the true faith, and cursed in time and eternity. The next day, George and his companions met as usual, all who were not seriously wounded of them. But as they strolled about the city, the rancorous eye and the finger of scorn was pointed against them, None of them was at first aware of the reason, but it threw a damp over their spirits and enjoyments, which they could not master. They went to take a forenoon game at their old play of tennis, not on a match, but by way of improving themselves. But they had not well taken their places till young Ringham appeared in his old station, at his brother's right hand, with looks more demure and determined than ever. His lips were primed so close that his mouth was hardly discernible, and his dark, deep eye flashed gleams of holy indignation on the godless set, but particularly on his brother. His presence acted as a mildew on all social intercourse or enjoyment. The game was marred, and ended ere ever it was well begun. There were whisperings apart, the party separated, and in order to shake off the blighting influence of this dogged persecutor, they entered sundry houses of their acquaintances, with an understanding that they were to meet on the links for a game at cricket. They did so, and stripping off part of their clothes, they began that violent and spirited game. They had not played five minutes till Ringham was stalking in the midst of them and totally impeding the play. A cry arose from all corners of, "Ah, this will never do. Kick him out of the playground. Knock down the scoundrel, or bind him, and let him lie in peace. By no means, cried George. It is evident he wants nothing else. Pray do not humor him so much as to touch him with either foot or finger. Then. Turning to a friend, he said in a whisper, Speak to him, Gordon. He surely will not refuse to let us have the ground to ourselves if you requested of him. Gordon went up to him and requested of him, civility but ardently, to retire to a certain distance, else none of them could or would be answerable, however sore he might be hurt. He turned disdainfully on his heel uttered a kind and pulpit hem and then added i will take my chance of that hurt me any of you at your peril the young gentleman smiled through spite and disdain of the dogged animal gordon followed him up and tried to remonstrate with him but he let him know that it was his pleasure to be there at that time and unless he could demonstrate to him what superior right he and his party had to that ground, in preference to him, and to the exclusion of all others, he was determined to assert his right, and the rights of his fellow citizens, by keeping possession of whatsoever part of that common field he chose. You are no gentleman, sir, said Gordon. Are you one, sir, said the other? Yes, sir. I will let you know that I am by Gah! Then thanks be to him whose name you have profaned. I am none. If one of the party be a gentleman, I do hope in God I am not." It was now apparent to them all that he was courting obloquy and manual chastisement from their hands, if by any means he could provoke them to the deed and apprehensive that he had some sinister and deep-laid design in hunting after such a singular favor they wisely restrained one another from inflicting the punishment that each of them yearned to bestow personally and which he so well deserved but the unpopularity of the younger george Calwain could no longer be concealed from his associates It was manifested wherever the populace were assembled, and his young and intimate friend, Adam Gordon, was obliged to warn him of the circumstance that he might not be surprised at the gentlemen of their acquaintance withdrawing themselves from his society, as they could not be seen with him without being insulted. George thanked him, and it was agreed between them that the former should keep himself retired during the daytime while he remained in Edinburgh, and that at night they should meet together, along with such of their companions as were disengaged. George found it every day more and more necessary to adhere to the system of seclusion, for it was not alone the hisses of the boys and populace that pursued him. A fiend of more malignant aspect was ever at his elbow, in the form of his brother. To whatever place of amusement he betook himself, and however well he concealed his intentions of going there from all flesh living, there was his brother Ringham also, and always within a few yards of him, generally about the same distance, and ever and anon darting looks at him that chilled his very soul. They were looks that cannot be described, but they were felt piercing to the bosom's deepest core. They affected even the onlookers in a very particular manner, for all whose eyes caught a glimpse of these hideous glances followed them to the object towards which they were darted. The gentlemanly and mild demeanor of that object generally calmed their startled apprehensions, for no one ever yet noted the glances of the young man's eye in the black coat at the face of his brother who did not at first manifest strong symptoms of alarm. George became utterly confounded, not only at the import of this persecution, but how in the world it came to pass that this unaccountable being knew all his motions, and every intention of his heart, as it were intuitively. On consulting his own previous feelings and resolutions, he found that the circumstances of his going to such and such a place were often the most casual incidents in nature. The caprice of a moment had carried him there, and yet he had never sat or stood many minutes till there was the self-same being, always in the same position with regard to himself, as regularly as the shadow is cast from the substance, or the ray of light from the opposing denser medium. For instance, he remembered one day of setting out with the intention of going to attend divine worship in the high church, and when, within a short space of its door, he was overtaken by young Kilpatrick of Closburn, who was bound to the Greyfriars to see his sweetheart, as he said, And if you will go with me, Colwain, said he, I will let you see her too, and then you will be just as forward as I am. George assented at once and went, and, after taking his seat, he leaned his head forwards on the pew to repeat over to himself a short ejaculatory prayer, as had always been his custom on entering the house of God. When he had done, he lifted his eye naturally towards that point on his right hand where the fierce apparition of his brother had been wont to meet his view. There he was in the same habit form demeanor and precise point of distance as usual george again laid down his head and his mind was so astounded that he had nearly fallen into a swoon he tried shortly after to muster up courage to look at the speaker at the congregation and at captain kilpatrick's sweetheart in particular but the fiendish glances of the young man in the black clothes were too appalling to be withstood. His eye caught them whether he was looking that way or not. At length his courage was fairly mastered, and he was obliged to look down during the remainder of the service. By night or by day it was the same. In the gallery of the Parliament House, in the boxes of the Playhouse, in the church in the assembly in the streets suburbs and the fields and every day and every hour from the first recounter of the two the attendance became more and more constant more inexplicable and altogether more alarming and insufferable until at last george was fairly driven from society and forced to spend his days in his and his father's lodgings with closed doors even there he was constantly harassed with the idea that the next time he lifted his eyes he would to a certainty see that face the most repulsive to all his feelings of aught the earth contained the attendance of that brother was now become like the attendance of a demon on some devoted being that had sold himself to destruction his approaches as undiscerned and his looks as fraught with hideous malignity it was seldom that he saw him either following him in the streets or entering any house or church after him he only appeared in his place george wist not how or whence and having sped so ill in his first friendly approaches he had never spoken to his equivocal attendant a second time it came at length into george's head as he was pondering by himself on the circumstances of this extraordinary attendance that perhaps his brother had relented and though of so sullen and unaccommodating a temper that he would not acknowledge it, or beg a reconciliation, it might be for that very purpose that he followed his steps night and day in that extraordinary manner. I cannot for my life see for what other purpose it can be, thought he. He never offers to attempt my life, nor dares he, if he had the inclination therefore although his manner is peculiarly repulsive to me i shall not have my mind burdened with the reflection that my own mother's son yearned for a reconciliation with me and was repulsed by my haughty and insolent behavior the next time he comes to my hand i am resolved that i will accost him as one brother ought to address another whatever it may cost me And if I am still flouted with disdain, then shall the blame rest with him. After this generous resolution, it was a good while before his gratuitous attendant appeared at his side again. And George began to think that his visits were discontinued. The hope was a relief that could not be calculated. But still George had a feeling that it was too supreme to last. His enemy had been too pertinacious to abandon his design, whatever it was. He, however, began to indulge in a little more liberty, and for several days he enjoyed it with impunity. End of Section 5